in the trilogy series, Back to the Future, there are two main characters that show up in various forms throughout the three movies. The bad guy, the antagonist, named Biff Tannen, and the good guy, the protagonist, Marty McFly, played by Michael J. Fox. And in the first movie, Marty is always able to outsmart Biff and get out of, get out of trouble. Marty always kind of gets the best of Biff and is kind of crafty and, and gets himself out of sticky situations. But in the second movie, the audience gets an unwanted surprise. Marty has to go to the future, so it's based in 1985, and Marty has to go into the future to keep his kid from going to jail. But when Marty comes back to 1985, the whole world has changed. He no longer lives in the house that his family grew up in, his dad is no longer alive, and his mother is married to a different man. man. And then he hears about Biff. Instead of Biff usually being kind of goofy and dumb, now he is this successful guy. He's got a large house, he owns businesses, he has servants, he has everything in life that he wanted. And Marty is puzzled, because he could always outwit Biff, and he could always get the best of Biff. So Marty goes to Biff to talk to him, and that's when Marty learns why everything in his world has changed. If you remember that scene, they're in Biff's office, and Biff turns around to his safe, and he starts to tell Marty why things have turned out good. And he pulls from that safe the Gray's Sports Almanac that gave him a prediction of all the future sports outcomes and scores and who would win for the next 50 years. And see, and that's how Biff became successful. He would bet on these sports, and then he would reap the winnings from betting on the right teams. And what happened is that when Marty went into the future to help his son, the old Biff hopped into that DeLorean, went back 60 years, and met the teenage Biff and gave him that sports almanac and told Biff, this is a prediction of all the sports outcomes for the next 50 years. Follow it and you'll know what to look for, who to bet on, and you'll enjoy life because of what you reap from those bets. And I tell you that story, one, because it's my favorite trilogy series that I always like to talk about, but also, as we start a new sermon series together, Directions to the Cradle, we have, as you could call it, our own sports almanac in front of us for us as believers. Ours is the Old Testament. The Old Testament predicted a future Messiah that would deliver the Jewish nation from their struggles. It predicted a future savior that would rescue them. And it wasn't just um, us that have the Old Testament. The Jews had it in their hands as well. They knew that it predicted their coming savior and they were using the Old Testament for more than 1400 years to look for that coming savior. Just like Biff with that sports almanac that told him all the future scores, the Jews had a prediction of a future Messiah, Messiah, a savior that would rescue them. But we as people living today need to be sure that Jesus meets the criteria described in the Old Testament for what the Messiah would look like. If we're gonna proclaim Jesus to others and point to him as someone in the Bible that you know, lived and saved us from our sins, 
we need to make sure that the first three quarters of the Bible actually predicted this Messiah that we describe to others. So we're starting today a three-part sermon series titled Directions to the Cradle, where we'll look at prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. And we're going to look at the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible, starting with the law today, with the Torah. And then next week, we'll look at uh, the Nevarim, which are called the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. And then the third week, we'll look at the writings, an example from the writings. So today, we're going to look at the law, a map given to us from the law. And I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, just one verse. And then we'll look at some other verses as we go along in our time together. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there, or the translation I'm reading from matches the translations in the pews. If you prefer to follow uh, the exact same translation, you're welcome to follow uh, that way. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This verse is what's called the Proto-Evangelium. It's the first gospel. It is the first promise or prophecy in the Bible that a Savior would come to earth and defeat Satan. It describes the coming Messiah to the Jews. And that word for Messiah means anointed one in Hebrew. And then when we come to the New Testament, they put it into Greek, which means Christ. He is the anointed one that they were waiting for. And here in Genesis 3.15, we see the first prediction of Jesus in the Old Testament. The serpent is Satan in this verse. And the woman is said to have a seed that would strike the head of the serpent. And that seed is a prophecy about the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. So in our time today, we're going to look at the context of Genesis 3 a little more broadly, the content specifically of verse 15, confirmation of this prophecy in the, the Torah, the law, as well as the rest of the Old Testament the New, and the New Testament. And then we'll look at four contributions of this verse to our faith today. So first, let's look at the context of Genesis 3. As we kind of just drop in out of nowhere into this, this chapter, we need to realize that these are real people that are being talked about throughout Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve were the original couple created by God and created in God's image. They lived in the Garden of Eden, and they enjoyed perfect harmony with God while living there. Satan, described here as the serpent, is a fallen angel that has other angels that fell with him when they rebelled against God in heaven. And those angels now are demons that administer judgment and cause harm and evil in the world based on Satan's direction to them. And one of the reasons among many that we believe Adam and Eve and, and Satan are, are real people described here, not just myths or fictional characters, is this word enmity is used throughout the Bible, always describing hostility between two real persons. And it seems to be used the same way here to describe enmity or hostility between living beings. So these were real people and they describe real events. There was fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil earlier in this chapter in chapter three. God had told Adam and Eve, don't eat from this fruit, but Adam and Eve ate from it. And as a result, evil entered into the world and caused sin. 
And because of that event that we call the fall, salvation is needed in the midst of judgment for every single person. And we know that from what we study in the New Testament, of course, that says everyone is separated from God and we all need a savior. But even right here in Genesis, starting with chapter four, we see salvation needed in the midst of judgment. After Cain was murdered, God gave Abel a mark on him to protect others from killing him. God spared Noah and his family when he judged the whole world with the flood. And after the judgments of the city of Babel in Genesis 11, God gives this promise and deliverance to Abraham and his family. So these were real people, real events. And it's good to remember Genesis 3 was interpreted uh, with the messianic look. People believe this was the Messiah from the early, early times that the Bible was written. We have evidence from Greek translations of the Hebrew, other rabbinic writings of Jews before Jesus was born that all describe this future person referring to this verse. But we need to also look at the content specifically of Genesis 3.15. And we need to define the people. It says you here in Genesis 3.15. When God says you, he's talking directly to Satan. And when he talks to the woman, when he references woman, that's referring to Eve. And we know the serpent described here as Satan because three verses in the New Testament tell us serpent is, the serpent is Satan. Revelation 12.9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So the serpent or the snake is Satan. And Eve is the first woman, the wife of Adam, and she gives birth to the human race. So that's who the you and the woman are in this verse. But we also need to look at the seed. When it says your seed here, that's referring to the descendants of Satan. And when it says her seed, that refers to Eve's descendant. And the descendants of Eve in the context here, describe the first offspring of Eve. So Abel, Cain, and Seth. Eventually, Eve's seed and Eve's offspring describes all of humanity and then Christ specifically. In us, living in our times, we are even described as the seed of Eve because we place our faith in Christ. So we're all considered descendants of Eve. But you might say, well, hey, it says, you know, seed there. That seems like a plural thing, her descendants. But then towards the end of the verse, it says, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So it says descendants are seed, that's plural, but then it gives this specific label to one person. And that's because the word here for seed in Hebrew is zerah. It's a, a noun, but it is a collective noun. It can be used in a plural form as well as a singular form. For example, in Genesis 4.25, it says, it's used in a singular form. It says, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring one man, Seth, in place of Abel, right? So that's the word used with a singular form. It's referring to one guy. But then 11 chapters later, Genesis 15, 5 says, it's talking about Abraham. God talks to Abraham and he says, 
uh, says, God took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Same word, but using Abraham's descendants as the many stars. And that's because Zerah is what's called a collective noun. It can be singular or plural. And this is a good example, maybe not the best example, but one you can see is this week I got a haircut, okay? I got a haircut. And hair in the English language is a collective noun. It can serve as a collective noun, not always. But I don't tell you that I got my hairs cut, like a thousand hairs were cut. I just say, I got my hair cut. It's the singular form, hair, describing many hairs on my head that were cut. And the same thing here for seed. It can refer to many or to one specific person based on the context and based on the personal pronouns used around it, just like we see here in Genesis 3.15. So when it talks about the seed here of Eve or her offspring, it's describing her future descendants, many sons or daughters, but it also points to one specific person, that is Christ. And Genesis 3.15 makes it clear that it will be one person at the very end when it says, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And I'll show you some more examples of why that's singular in a little bit. So those are the descendants of Eve, but there's also some descendants seed of Satan talked about. The offspring of Satan then are de demons, fallen angels that rebelled against God in heaven and fell from heaven with Satan. And now in the New Testament, it describes Satan's offsprings as being anyone that follows Satan and does his will. John 8:44 says, you are of your father, the devil, talking about wicked people, and you want to do the desires of your father. So evil and wicked people now in our times are described as Satan's seed. So we also need to define their actions and the result of what actually happens here. What's the battle that's going on? The text reads, he, which is Eve's descendant, Jesus, he shall bruise you, Satan, on the head, and you, Satan, shall bruise Jesus on the heel. Now, it's good to take a step back and not just picture these as black words on a white page, but picture a woman standing next to a snake on the ground. A woman or human standing with a snake on the ground, she's in the power position. She's standing up. She has the ability to kill the snake easily, to conquer him and to kill him. She has a plain view of him and his head, where to strike him. But the serpent, the snake, he's on the ground. He can strike her foot, maybe her calf, maybe get to her knee if it's a big snake and he can really get high, but he can't get any of her vital organs. So the picture God's painting here is a picture of victory that has already occurred by allowing the woman to stand and the, the serpent, the snake, to be on the ground. But even with that, Satan still has a battle he wants to fight. Right? So to summarize, Satan will try to cripple Christ by bruising his heel, and Christ will kill Satan by striking his head. And Satan used his descendants in the New Testament those evil and wicked ungodly men to cause Christ to suffer, suffer 
and to kill Jesus on the cross. That's what it means when it says Satan's seed will strike the heel of the woman's seed. That's how Satan bruised the heel of Eve's seed, Christ. But Christ striked Satan the death blow to the head when he overcame death and came back to life. When he spent three days in the grave and everybody thought it was all over, and then he comes back to life, that's when he strikes that death blow to Satan's head because he overcame death and made it power allowable for all of us to overcome death through our faith in him. Jesus prayed the, paid the price for every person's sin and made redemption available to lost men and women. But I don't want us just to look at this one tiny little verse in Genesis 3 about a Messiah. We should also see what is the rest of the words that Moses wrote describe about this Messiah, as well as the Old Testament writings and even the New Testament. Okay? So there's some other verses that also describe this same Messiah that's going to come. It's kind of like the joke about butter. I want to tell you a joke about butter, but you have to promise you won't spread it around, okay? Moses spreads this prophecy around in the law, and then in the rest of the Old Testament, other writers spread the prophecy around, if you can follow my butter, butter joke. So let's first look at the Torah. In the very next chapters of Genesis, the trail of two seeds becomes clear. Moses, who wrote the Torah, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, gave a hint of this coming Redeemer and then used the rest of the law to identify the Messiah. And I'll just kind of describe it for you, uh, but then when we look at the rest of the Old Testament, we'll look at some of those verses together. But I'll just describe some of these to you. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, Cain represents wickedness and kills Abel. And we see the wicked line of Cain along the righteous line of Seth start to separate. The righteous line is tra traced through Seth to Noah. And then Moses follows that line from Noah's descendant Shem to Abraham. And that leads to God calling Abraham and making them a unique nation. Then starting with Genesis 12 with the nation of Israel, starting with Abraham, God gives these covenant promises to Abraham, and he uses that same word, Zerah, over and over and over again to describe this future seed, this future offspring that would come. Genesis 17 says, kings will come forth from you. The same promise was given to Sarah. Kings of the peoples will come from her. Genesis then continues to show the promised line uh, showing in how God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. God chose Jacob, not Esau. And then the 12 sons of Jacob with Judah, focusing on them. Then in Exodus 19, as Moses is about to give the law to the nation of Israel, God tells them, I'm giving this to you so you'll remain unique and distinct and separate from all the other nations because that seed has to come through the nation of Israel. And one of the purposes of the law was to keep them separate and preserve that seed that would come through them. Then in the book of Numbers, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, then in Numbers, this guy named Balaam shows up on the scene and he gives these end-time prophecies about this future savior and deliverer that would redeem Israel. And he identifies this person as a seed, as the lion of the tribe of Judah, is how he describes him. And it's an allusion back to Genesis 3.15, describing one man that will 
help them crush all of their enemies. But it doesn't end there, just with Genesis, Exodus, and Numbers. If you flip over to 2 Samuel, God's talking to King David and tells him about a future descendant, one man that will come after him. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. It says, When your days are complete, he's talking to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you. Again, one person. And you will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits him iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul when I removed him before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So again, we see that prophecy starting with Eve, through Abraham, through Jacob, through the tribe of Judah, through David and his descendants. And then if you go to Psalm 10, 110, we looked at some historical books there. If you go to Psalm 110, David overhears this conversation between God the Father and Jesus Christ and writes it down for us. Psalm 110.1 reads, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. This verse says that the enemies against Israel would be under their feet, just as Satan, the serpent, would be conquered under the woman's feet. And then if you go to the book of Isaiah, so we've looked at the historical books, some from the wisdom books, and then a prophecy from Isaiah, chapter 35. You'll recognize this one when I read it, talking about this coming Messiah. Chapter 34 is all about judgment and the bad things that are going to happen. But chapter 35 shifts and talks about future blessings. Isaiah 35, 6, uh, 35 verses 5 and 6 reads, But they said, We will not drink wine. Uh, I'm in Jeremiah, not Isaiah. I'm sorry. I thought it was at the wrong portion of the page. There we go. It was supposed to be on this side. Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6. This is a future promise and a blessing that's going to happen in the future, Isaiah is giving them. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the Arbah. And you probably recognize because Jesus quotes those verses in Matthew 11 saying, I am that one guy that Isaiah was talking about. But it doesn't end there in the Old Testament. If you turn over to the Gospel of Luke, we see this talked about even more in Luke chapter 24. Matthew, Mark, Luke. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus has come back from the dead. He's resurrected back to life. He's walking around and he meets these two guys 
walking to Emmaus. They're walking on their way to Emmaus, and they don't recognize Jesus, for whatever reason it might be. And while they don't recognize him, in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, he starts to talk to them. And it says here, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he, which is Jesus, explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now Moses wrote the law, which we looked at in various forms, and then also the prophets we looked at, and Jesus says it's all the scriptures describe him, and that's what he taught these men. Then these men eventually realize it's Jesus, they go off and they find the 11 disciples. If you jump down to verse 44, and he says to all of the disciples, he says, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses, so Genesis through Deuteronomy, and the prophets, Isaiah and some of the other ones, and the Psalms, we read those too, must be fulfilled. So these Old Testament people wrote about this Messiah, and as soon as Jesus comes, he announces, I am that one described there. But it doesn't end there. If you jump over to John, Chapter 1 of John, as Jesus arrives on the scene and he starts calling these disciples, he just tells them, come follow me, and then they just come follow him. We get to see the response of some of these everyday guys. John chapter 1 verse 41 says, He found first his own brother Simon, one of the guys following Jesus, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. Sounds kind of familiar. And then John 1.45 says something similar, just with different guys. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law, okay, so again, and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So we have confirmation of Genesis 3.15 in the, book of the books of the law, in the rest of the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament. But what does this simple little prophecy in one verse in Genesis mean for us as believers today? And there's four contributions to our faith that this verse makes. One is that we are in the middle of a spiritual war living today. While this passage in Genesis 3.15 does describe one future man coming in the f future to save a nation, it also describes a war that is occurring on earth right now. I remember when I was uh, going through Bible college and I was doing some night classes and there was a guy there that had been an engineer. And he got laid off during the Great Recession of 2008 that you probably remember. He got laid off from his engineering job, went back to school at night to try to be a pastor and was doing these Bible college classes and I was in the classes with him. And amongst having a wife and kids and bills and getting let go and paying for tuition, they tried to refinance their house to save a little money for the time being. And I remember him sharing that the company they tried to refinance their house with ended up being a scam and they took like $1,500 of his money up front and he never got his house refinanced. I remember thinking the poor guy got laid off, he's lost everything, he's trying to do the right thing and follow God and go to school and you know, do ministry and here is this spiritual war or something going on trying to prevent him from following God's will. 
And we've seen the spiritual war in the attempt of evil, empowered by Satan, to stamp out and kill Jews from the face of the earth. I'm not sure if any nation of the world has experienced more persecution and suffering over the thousands of years as the Jews have. Why? Because Satan knows there is this savior that's going to come through the nation of the Jews and he has future prophecies he still is going to fulfill and Satan wants to exterminate them and kill them and remove them and stop that prophecy. And we even see that spiritual war right now with the COVID pandemic. Families that used to get along well and, and spend time together now have disagreements and can't figure out how do we meet for Thanksgiving or Christmas and not and who's vaccinated or not. Companies that used to work with the government now have new complications and agreements they have to negotiate regarding requirements. Churches and their people have sharp agreements with what does the church do to follow the government or not, and what does that look like? Meanwhile, Satan sits over in the corner, probably just saying, this is great, keep it going. How can I create another variant to keep this pandemic going and further divide and split the church and people and families? A second contribution to our faith is we need humility about our current Bible interpretations. This is important because the Jews missed Jesus when he came. Most of them missed him when he came. They had an idea of what he was supposed to be like. And when Jesus didn't match their interpretations as this magnificent, powerful king that would immediately deliver them from the Romans, they rejected him. And as Protestant evangelical Christians, there are essentials of our beliefs, but there's also non-essentials. There's things that we need to be unified on, but there's other things that we can have differing opinions on. And on those things, we should have a little bit of liberty and some humility. I'm not saying we accept every goofy interpretation people have, but on those, some of the truths, it's okay for us to differ on. Differ on. A good example is, <clears throat> on the return of Christ. We all agree that there will be a literal, visible return of Christ in the future. There'll be a bodily resurrection of believers, a final judgment, and a literal heaven and hell. Those are kind of four essentials for end times, orthodox Christian belief that we all need to have unity on. But it's okay for us to disagree on the timing of those, pre or post-rapture or pre-mill, post-mill, on-mill, whatever that might look. There's a couple coffee jokes in there for our coffee drinkers. Mill, pre, post, before the beans are ground? Maybe not. Okay. That's why I'm supposed to script my jokes. Okay. <laughs> so we need to have humility for our current Bible interpretations. The third contribution is we have a point of evangelism to Jews that we meet in our society. Right? And there's even a family that came out of our church, the Lunderville family. I got to meet Shane a couple months ago. He talked about how he grew up in here, and he went to the missionary denomination um, Pastoral Leadership Institute for three years, and then he started his own Messianic Jewish church here in town that is for people that believe Jesus was the Messiah of the Old Testament. And one of the reasons I wanted to cover these directions to the cradle, Old Testament verses, is because it gives us a bridge that we can use with Jewish people that we meet in our community and that we come in contact with. As Jews, they don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah and they reject a lot of the New Testament. But if we meet them and start to have conversations with them, we need to know a little bit about the Old Testament 
and start to be able to explain why we believe Jesus was the Messiah as a way to simply have a conversation with them and share our faith with them. So four contributions to our faith. We're in the middle of a spiritual war. We need humility for our current Bible interpretations. We have a point of evangelism with the Jews. And lastly, we need to remember we follow a God that is trustworthy, reliable, and a God that follows through on his promises. God predicted this Messiah would come, and he did. God is patient, loving, and trustworthy. And when we see that God predicted this Messiah in the Old Testament, it should give us assurance that the things written about in the New Testament are true and trustworthy too. God said that the Messiah would come, and he did. And when Jesus tells us that he's coming back, we should believe that he is going to return someday as well. So as we wrap up our time together, I want to read to you a story from a guy named Michael Rydelnik. He says, Messianic prophecy was the means God used to bring me to faith in Jesus the Messiah. My parents were Holocaust survivors who raised me in a traditional Jewish home. We were orthodox in our Jewish beliefs and practices, and as much, I did believe in the future coming of a personal Messiah. Even so, it was not a central issue of my life. However, that changed when my mother announced that she believed in Jesus. This led to my Jewish father divorcing her and a radical shift in my life. I decided to study the Messianic prophecies of the Hebrew Bible and prove my mother wrong in attributing their fulfillment to Jesus of Nazareth. Although I was initially quite confident of my opinion, in time I was surprised to see that there was far more credibility to the messianic uh, messianship of Jesus that I had first anticipated. After dealing with my fears of ostracism from the Jewish community, based on my new conviction that the scriptures foretold a suffering Messiah who would be rejected by his own people and provide forgiveness through his death and resurrection, I put my trust in Jesus as Messiah and Lord. I became convinced, and remain so, that my faith in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, who fulfilled the predictions of the Hebrew Bible, is an intrinsically Jewish faith. I would never have made this decision apart from studying messianic prophecy. In fact, apart from messianic prediction and fulfillment, Jesus could not be identified as the Messiah of Israel. And if not that, then he could not be the Messiah of the world. It is for this reason, joined with my commitment to exegetical accuracy, I believe this is essential to understand the Hebrew Bible as messianic. And there's a lot of people like Michael in the world. Some are Jewish and some aren't. But what they have in common is they don't believe the Bible contains truth. They don't believe the Bible has anything special to say. They think it's just another book. But when we study these Old Testament prophecies, we learn that God gave us inspired words that are without error. God predicted future events and described future people that no one could explain without acknowledging God as the ultimate author. The text of Genesis 3.15 are words of hope and encouragement for us. They were a message of hope to the people living in the Old Testament when they were written 
3,500 years ago. They were encouragement for the believers living in Jesus' time 2,000 years ago. And they should be encouraging for us as we read them and share them with others today. Let's pray. And at this time, I'll invite the worship team to come up here as we prepare for communion. God, thank you for your word that tells us all the way back in Genesis 3 that you would send a savior, that it would be someone from Eve, a man that would conquer Satan and overcome him. I pray for us as a church that um, you would help us to see these words in a way that we can share them with others that we could tell others about Jesus and, and how he's not just a New Testament person that showed up out of nowhere, but he was described in Genesis and Exodus and Numbers and Psalms and Second Samuel and all these other books. So we pray for our church that you would uh, help us be witnesses of, of your predictions in the Old Testament. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.